Brothers and sisters, to this day, I can still remember how, as a child, I used to contemplate the eternity of God. I'm sure kids do this on some some regular basis. Uh, For me, I I don't remember uh, all the specific occasions when I fell into this contemplation, except perhaps for once. Uh, My grandparents owned a house on about an acre of land outside uh, of town where I grew up, and uh, I remember one time being by myself and walking about in the yard, uh, whether it was the opportunity to get outside of the busy, noisy city, or, uh, or just the sense of joy and comfort in visiting my grandparents' house. But for whatever reason, I found myself wandering about the yard, thinking to myself about the eternity of God. And my reflections went something like this. A hundred years ago, God existed. A thousand years ago, God existed. A million years ago, uh, even, uh, uh, even before the world existed, God existed. Ten million years before the world was created, God existed. A hundred million years before the world was created, God existed. And on and on I went, in a sense, amazing myself, more and more as I thought further and further back in time and contemplating how God was there at that time, how God has existed for millions and millions and millions of years. Well, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child when I became a man I gave up childish ways. Or did I? You see, to think about the eternity of God in terms of even an infinite span of time is rather childish. And yet it's so difficult for us not to do so. We are creatures bound by time. There is a day of our birth, which we celebrate each year, known as our birthday, And there is the impending day of our death, which we certainly do not celebrate, but rather do whatever we can to put that day off, not think about it. And between the day of our birth and the day of our death are a certain number of years. Uh, How many we don't know, except to count another year each time our birthday comes around again. We are time-bound creatures. As Psalm 90 says, the span of our years is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. And because we are time-bound creatures, it is all too easy, all too natural for us to think of God's eternal existence in terms of years, in terms of a, a length of time, millions, billions, trillions of years, throughout which God has always existed. But if you stop and think about it, that really is a matter of projecting our existence, or at least an aspect of our existence, onto God. If someone were to ask uh, us, uh, has God always existed? On one hand, we could say, yes, to be sure, God is eternal. He has always existed. But in another sense, we could say, no. God has not always existed. Instead, we could just say, God exists. God just is. 
And this is really what God meant when he said to Moses, recorded in Exodus 20 or Exodus uh, 3, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, he instructed Moses, I am has sent me to you. He didn't say, I was and will be, nor did he say, I have always existed and always will exist. Instead, he even took these words to be his name, I am. And this as well is the significance of Romans 1 verse 8, uh, Revelation 1 verse 8, when we hear God say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As time-bound creatures, we we might expect a a past, present, future order. But it doesn't say, I was and I am and I will be. Instead, He is the God who is and who was and who is to come. So does it really matter? Is it so important how we think about the eternity of God? On one hand, no. I I suppose it, it... does it matter in the sense that we're not going to blame children for how they think about God? I, I don't think I was uh, committing some sin while out walking in my grandparents' yard. Uh, on the other hand, it does matter in the sense that we must learn not to project our humanness onto God or upon God. In Second Peter 3, verse 8, the Apostle Peter teaches us of God that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And I think what Peter means by this is, is that time doesn't apply to an eternal God. Peter was writing, of course, about the return of Christ. And he was warning the church that there will always be scoffers about those who mock and, and deny that Jesus is coming again, because after all, Jesus himself said, I am coming soon. Well, soon was over a long, long time ago. We're in the later now, and Jesus hasn't come back. So Peter, in essence, said, don't project your time-bound existence onto God. Don't think of God that He is like you, as if He is ever early or late, or in any way bound by time. So this evening, I want us to—I want us, in a sense, to look at, at just this one verse, Second Peter three verse eight, and to think about and hear the proclamation of God's word concerning the eternity of God. The verse again is this: but do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And I want us to start with this first point, how to falsify your God. Or if we, uh, if we might put it in a slightly different way, how to, how to tip your hand, so to speak, and reveal that you really have a false God in mind that you are thinking about God in such a way as to project your humanness on him. And I just want to point out the several ways that I think um, people are known to do this. First, there's the God who gets hungry. And we hear about this false God and this erroneous thinking about God in Psalm 50. Uh, In Psalm 50, verse 21, God says in 
uh, as he's rebuking his people Israel, he says, These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought I was one like yourself. Or as the ESV footnote says, You thought the I am was one like yourself. And specifically in verse 50, the way that people had come to think that God was like them was to begin to think that the reason they brought animal sacrifices to God in the temple was to feed God. And we might want to ask, really? Uh, Did they really think that God needed to be fed? And the answer is yes. This is actually the way of the pagan nations around them. They would would meet the needs of their God, and then their God would see fit to do the things for them that they needed. And so God had said to his people in in Psalm 50, verse 8, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And in verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Here's a a rebuke that we may need to hear as well. We, We may need this rebuke, this correction from God. If we ever think that we have something to give to God that does not already belong to God. Sometimes people say, uh, I gave my life to Jesus. No, they didn't. <laughs> because if they really have a life to give to Jesus, it's, it's only because, as, as Paul puts it, they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Or they say, I made Jesus Lord of my life. Again, you, you can't really do that. You can't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Uh, You can only acknowledge that He is your Lord, whether you think He is or not. So let's not think, uh, oh, those those, uh, Israelites, uh, so foolish, so unsophisticated, so unspiritual. We can do the same thing. We might not think that God is hungry so that we bring Him physical food to eat, but we can just as foolishly think that we have something that God needs something that God has uh, or that God is somehow lacking so that we must meet his need. And so another way that, that someone might falsify their God, so to speak, is by thinking that God gets lonely. And the point is not to say that they think, boy, God must be lonely. I better spend some time with him. Instead, they imply that uh, that God is lonely by assuming that however they decide to approach God, however they decide to worship God, it must surely be just fine by him. In other words, God is like a a lonely grandparent. Uh, To some degree, grandparents don't care how their children and grandchildren come into the house, just so long as they're there as they come. Grandchildren might run right past them on their way to to the toy box, The grandchildren might be squabbling even as they walk in the door, and yet the grandparents just sigh a a sigh of pleasure and, and, uh, and say, Oh, how wonderful that my children have come, my grandchildren have come to visit me. 
But is that how God is? That boy, oh boy, he's just glad we've come. Never mind how we approach him. Never mind how we worship him. He's just glad we're here. We need to know that that's not the God of Scripture. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. Oh, wait, you can't ask them. They're dead, put to death by God himself. Uh, Or remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. God is a holy God. And as Moses explained to Aaron concerning the deaths of his sons, recorded in Leviticus 10, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, don't get me wrong. On one hand, in one sense, it is better to be here than to not be here. If you have a particularly busy Saturday and you don't end up preparing yourself all that well for worship, then the point is not that you should stay home. But if you consistently come to church in a a sloppy, half-hearted way, If you're too often late for church and too often drone your way and grind your way through the worship service, only looking for the end of it and the opportunity to go home, then you have a serious problem. Are you not, in a sense, saying, God should just be happy I've come? Why? Because He's lonely and needs you to come? Because if you don't come, He will be out the worship that you would have brought Him? To put it another way, what does your coming before God say about God? Again, God has made it clear, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Another great verse in this respect is Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, which says this, Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Next is the God who needs assistance. And this is the thing we must remember as we go forth from worship to serve Christ and his kingdom. In fact, one of the best motivators for our Christian service is to remember that Christ does not need us. And you might ask, uh, how does that work? Uh, Isn't it better? Uh, Isn't it the better motivation to think that he needs us? That if we don't do the job, then it's not going to get done. But that's just not the truth. Serving Christ is a privilege. Serving Christ is an honor. And the best way to remember that is to realize that if we don't do it, he's going to do it without us. With or without us, God is going to save his elect. If we don't evangelize the nations, then there is absolutely no chance that it won't get done. It's just that we will then miss out on the great privilege if we don't don't evangelize the nations. We will miss the great privilege. We will miss the great honor of being involved in what God is doing what he will do, what he has promised to do, what he will do with or without us. And we do hear this all too often, the the guilt trip laid on the congregation. If you don't witness to your neighbor, 
he's going to perish forever and ever. No, he isn't. If God intends to save him or her, then that person will be saved. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, then why evangelize? Why witness to your neighbor? Because God is the God who saves sinners and because he has ordained that he will do so through a faithful church. If we don't do it, I promise you that someone else will. But we will then lose the opportunity to have the privilege and the honor of being caught up in God's eternal purpose and pleasure in saving sinners from their sins. And if we sit around long enough, then we lose our assurance as well, because how can it be that those who know Christ and and love Christ are not ready and willing to stand for Christ and to be witnesses in a world of sinners who so desperately indeed need Christ. If we sit around long enough, then it might be the case that someone needs to come and evangelize us. Finally, at least for our purposes here, there's the God who needs time. Another way to falsify your God is to think that your God needs time. Uh, We need time to get things done. Uh, If students get an assignment, they might immediately ask, well, when is it due? And if it's due too soon, at least by their uh, uh, evaluation, uh, they immediately complain, but there's not enough time to do that. It, it, It will take too much time away from my schedule. So does God need time as well? On one hand, we can easily answer, of course not. God is not like us, but we can also make the mistake of thinking that God is struggling. And of course, struggle requires time. Uh, Perhaps God is struggling. Perhaps God is in a sword fight with the devil. Uh, The devil attacks, and so God dodges the attack. He doubles back, and then he makes a counterattack, and he pushes the devil back a little further. But the devil's not done either. He, He regroups. He comes back with another attack. And this time, oh my, God is really caught off guard The church suffers. The church is almost snuffed out. But God rallies and rescues the church just in time. Do we understand that Christ has already died and risen again? Christ is even now victorious on his throne. So yes, there was a time when God struggled with the devil, so to speak. But that's only because God entered into time in the person of his son, Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there you will see a struggle. But the struggle is that of Christ in the flesh. The struggle is that of Christ as he took upon himself our struggle. And he overcame in that struggle, not for himself, because he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. But when he returned, he did did so having overcome the evil one for us. When he returned to the Father, he returned taking our flesh with him into heaven. And now he is no longer struggling, nor will he ever again. Now we can be sure that everything the devil does is not a threat, but is part of Christ's purpose in saving his church. It's worth pointing out that God does not need any particular candidate in the White House. Can we 
We just agree to that. God does not need any particular makeup of the Supreme Court. God does not need both houses of Congress to be held by any particular political party. Now, we can certainly hope and pray and work for the outcome of of an election that seems best to us, but here's our comfort that Christ is. What this country will be is yet to be seen, but Christ is. Christ is already victorious. In fact, he is victorious. He was victorious. Again, he is victorious even before he came into this world in our own flesh. He came to earth victorious in himself, only taking on our flesh in order to take on our struggle. And even that struggle, he has already won for us. That's the point of what Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18. The disciples were amazed to to find that the demons were subject to them as they drove them out in the name of Christ. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, in essence, well, sure. (laughs) What did you expect? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Well, what did Jesus mean? All the apostles went on to suffer terribly for the gospel. All but one went on to die at the hands of Christ's enemies. What did Jesus mean? Nothing shall hurt you. Well, he was speaking from that eternal that perspective of eternity. And brothers and sisters, we must learn to think within and from the perspective of eternity. So here's the next main point, eternity in the heart of man. First of all, why why do we even have within us the concept, the idea of eternity? You ever ever think about this? Where, Where does it exist? There is no place on earth where you can go and and look upon something called eternity. The same thing is true of perfection. Why do we even have this idea within us that anything can be perfect? As far as what we can see and experience in this world, there is no such thing as perfection. And just so, there is no such thing as eternity as far as man's perception and experience. So why do we think about it? How do we think about it? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 gives us the answer when, when wise Solomon writes in verse 11 that God has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, even Solomon points out that that man tends to think about a beginning and an end. And why? Because we are fallen in sin. Because of sin, uh, it is appointed unto man to die. The wages of sin is death. And so we are time-bound creatures. But we also have this sense of eternity. Why? Because God has put eternity in our hearts We would probably argue, along with John Calvin, that man's sense of the eternal comes from his senses, divinitatis, uh, his sense of the divine. We have a sense of eternity because we have a sense of the divine. 
And yet, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, we cannot, we, we cannot even fathom what God has done within time, yet alone what it fully means that God is eternal. An eternal God. What does that even mean? And so we do our best, don't we? As children, we, we contemplate that a million years before the world began, God was there existing. But as adults, we learn the language of Scripture that God is the I am of all being. He is the God who is and who was and who is to come. Or as Peter puts it, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So here's the last point. Quite simply, if... If I dare to put it that way, quite simply, quite simply, the eternity of God. Where does eternity exist such that we even have this concept within us? It exists in God. God is eternal. And we need to, we need to learn to think within the perspective of eternity, which is to say we need to learn to think from God's perspective. And how do we do this? How, how do we learn it? The answer, as it so often is, is to read our Bibles and to meditate on the teachings of God's Word. We need to, need to hear Genesis 1, verse 1 say, In the beginning, God. And we need to hear John 1, verse 1, as it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Even as He, that is Christ, became flesh and tabernacled among us. We need to hear Jesus say of himself, before Abraham was, I am. And yes, we need to hear and remember what Peter wrote, that with the the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And why do we need to think in this way from from the perspective of eternity? Because, Because there is so much comfort in it. There is great comfort in knowing that God decreed our salvation from before the foundations of the earth, even before the world began, an eternal God decided and declared what would be within the span of time. And if that's the case, then it is. It is the case. What God has decreed is, regardless of where we happen to be within the span of time. When were you saved? We might say, uh, oh, happy day. I, it was when I was 13 at summer camp. Uh, or uh, uh, it was when I was nine under the nurture and instruction of my, of my parents. Or for some, uh, it was much later in life after God got my attention and, and brought me to despair of myself and to trust in Christ after a, a bitter time of suffering in my life. But from an eternal perspective, can we not say that by the eternal decrees of God, I was saved from the foundations of the earth. I have always been the apple of God's eye. And I was upon the mind of Christ. I was upon the mind of Christ, not only from the foundations of the earth, but even on the cross. Jesus thought of me even as he suffered and died. 
And so it is with the return of Christ as well, to come full circle. When will Jesus come again? What kind of question is that? In one sense, he's already come. And I'm not even talking about his first coming. When will Jesus come? He's already come. Well, did we miss it? No, it it just hasn't happened yet in history. But from the perspective of eternity, it has been decreed from the foundations of the earth. Just as when God said, let there be light, and so there was light. Well, just so, when God decreed the second coming of Christ, it was so, and it is so. We just haven't reached that point in history because we're time-bound creatures. We have to wait for it. But God has decreed it. And it is. But we can be just as sure of it as that. The return of Christ can even fill our consciousness on a daily basis. Even on, a, on, on an hourly, minute-by-minute basis, we can live in the expectation of, of Christ's return because we have been given the eternal perspective of God Himself. There are so many other questions that... Uh, get answered for us by way of the eternal perspective of of God. Questions like, uh, uh, how were God's people saved before the coming of Christ? Well, what do you mean? How were they saved? (laughs) They were saved as all sinners are saved by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Revelation 13 even refers to Christ as the Lamb who was slain from the foundations or from the creation of the world. How was Christ slain from the creation of the world? By way of the eternal decree of God. And how about this question? Uh, Where was Christ on Saturday between his death the day before and his resurrection on the first day of the week? But what do we mean? Where was he? He was where he has always been, seated at the right hand of the Father. But he hadn't risen yet. He hadn't ascended yet. But don't project your time-bound existence onto an eternal Christ. Yes, he entered into our time. Yes, he took to himself our flesh. But he is the eternal son. He is the Christ of eternity. And where will we be after we die, after the resurrection? Another, Another question that forces us into the eternal perspective. And the answer comes, well, what what perspective do you want to answer from? Uh, From this side of heaven, our bodies will be in the grave and our souls will be in heaven. But from the perspective of eternity, we will be in heaven with our Savior. To the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in heaven. Uh, He didn't say, give me a couple days and I'll catch up with you in heaven. No, from the, from the perspective of eternity, he said, Today you will be with me in heaven. And so in the end, Peter is actually giving us uh, a bit of baby talk. Uh, with the Lord, one day is, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Of course, we, or, or he could have said, uh, With the Lord, one day is as a million years. Um, Uh, He could have said, with the Lord, one second is as a million minutes. Uh, He could have said, with the Lord, one moment is as all eternity, and all eternity as but one moment in time. 
So let us not be the scoffer. Because a scoffer is even, in, a, in one sense, even less than a child. At least the child knows that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But the scoffer is foolish enough even to say, Jesus, you're late. Really? A time-bound creature is going to tell the eternal Christ that he is late. So don't be that fool. Jesus is coming again in the wisdom of God and by the perspective of eternity. Jesus is coming again, so let us expect it each and every day. Amen. Let's pray. We are time-bound creatures subject to death. The years of our lives are 70, perhaps 80 if we have strength. We are bound by time, and yet we have this sense of you, O God. And so we have this sense of something called eternity. And so we pray that you would give us your eternal perspective on all things. So that we will draw great comfort from knowing that by your eternal decrees, we are your people. Christ is our Savior. He is coming again, and we can wait patiently within time for that which is eternal to come upon us. Indeed, give us this faith to live in eager expectation each and every day for the return of our Savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.